finish everything with the esophagus, so we're going to head over down into the stuff, uh, stomach. All right, so this is the, a couple of these slides, I'm not sure why it shows up like this, uh, but like there's more stuff on the bottom. Okay. But basically, this is just a breakdown of everything that we're going to be doing. I'm going to introduce you how many people get this, what are the risk factors, how it occurs, what are the clinical features, what we all need to do for it. What are the other things you need to be thinking about? Complications, management, and in the education you send your patients on. So we're going to stick with the stomach here for now. It's going to be the gastritis or gastropathies, peptic ulcer disease, H. pylori, gastroparesis, cancer. We touched a little bit on Zollinger-Ellis yesterday. We're going to see some more of it today and kind of get more specific into it. All right. So you do need to know a few of these terms. Uh, and this is what I was talking about. I think this is the one last slide that go on the bottom and has a little bit more information. So. I'm gonna start with that first. So the phlegmonous, when something is phlegmonous, it's pre-abscess, okay? This is a collection of fluid that eventually will get encapsulated and become like an abscess, okay? So that's what phlegmonous means. If you have a phlegmon in the, in the stomach, this can get very dangerous because that patient usually is gonna become pretty septic very quick. To have an abscess or a precursor to the abscess in the stomach uh, can get pretty dangerous and so you'll start seeing like a leukocytosis in those kind of patients, okay? So, Gastritis isn't entirely something of a, of a diagnosis. You could just make right off the bat without doing endoscopy, believe it or not. So a gastritis uh, diagnosis has to be made when you do a biopsy, okay? Because you have to know what is causing that inflammation. If you don't know what it is, so more than likely, if you're in the ER uh, or in other places that you haven't done an endoscopy, that patient's gonna have a gastropathy based on the symptoms that they're having, not a gastritis, popular, uh, you know, contrary to popular belief. H. pylori, we're definitely gonna be touching on that. I think when it gets to that, you should really get down to, normally I don't get into like the, you know, the little uh, algorithms and like, ah, oh, you don't need to pay attention to that. But in this one, I want you to pay attention to a little bit more because it is gonna become more significant when you start getting into your clinical rotations and your clinical medicine. So that would be something that I would tell you to uh, save and, and screenshot or whatever it is. When we say something is erosive, uh, that means that, you know, basically the lining has been deteriorated. That can happen from alcohol, NSAIDs, we talked about that a little bit, especially if there's a lot of uh, you know, reflux or bile reflux in the stomach as well. Stress can cause gastritis, so when people say I have a stress ulcer in my stomach, it's absolutely true. Some of you may have already gone through that, that is a thing. Uh, unfortunately, you cannot eliminate this stress. All you can do is just go through it and end it and just do the best you can, right? Autoimmune gastritis, uh, so again, when now the body starts to attack itself, you start looking into the parietal cells and the intrinsic factors um, that end up trying, kind of destroying all those uh, fundamental glands. Okay, and we talked about phlegmonics already. Okay, so gastritis again, common secondary to an infection or it could be autoimmune as well. Gastropathies are usually from something that you are taking or inflicting your body with. So it could be like alcohol, it could be NSAIDs, uh, but it could also be endogenous uh, things that you already have in your body, like gastric acid and also bile, bile reflux, okay? So gastropathies are things that we can kind of more or less tell you by the history that you're giving us. So that'll be something ischemic, physical stress, and chronic congestion as well, sometimes from overeating, okay? So like I said, gastritis is a term used by endoscopists, so we're not endoscopists, right? Uh, some of us aren't yet, but you know, that's the best way to give you that diagnosis of gastritis. You can't say gastritis without an endoscopy, okay? So here are your different causes of gastropathy versus gastritis. This is just kind of like an introduction of the different things that we're gonna be talking about and the different things you should be thinking about 
when you have a patient that comes with dyspepsia or, or you know, GERD-like symptoms, and then you, know, you can narrow it down to some of these uh, differentials. So the risk factors for both of these, they're basically going to be H. pylori. It's one of the biggest risk factors. Um, NSAIDs, we talked about this as well. Alcohol, a previous surgery in the past. Uh, critically ill patients and autoimmune diseases. Critically ill patients, like I was telling you yesterday, those are patients that are going to be laying down a lot. There's not a lot of movement, so there's probably you know not enough digestion happening. There's really nothing happening, so everything just kind of sits still, and you do have to prophylax them with like a Pepsid um, while they're in the hospital. Okay, so when it gets into the pathophysiology of things, uh, I'm not going to park on this too much, but. The big one is that the NSAID is a big one that they usually like to ask on the board as well. So basically what happens is what happens is that they decrease the gastric glucose of blood flow. And then also what happens is that the NSAIDs, part of why they take care of pain is because they inhibit the prostaglandin. But when they do that, they also take away the gastric acid that you need to uh, kind of lubricate the lining of the wall as well. <clears throat> so this can be absolutely asymptomatic. If you have a gastritis, you may not even know it. Uh, so a lot of times, you know, they're basically going to come to you when it's a little bit, uh, not too late, but it's probably already done its damage and then we have to do some sort of like, you know, either reversal of the damage, um, whether, you know, taking away the irritant that they have, but most of the time this usually can be asymptomatic. Or also very vague, non-specific symptoms too. So like anorexia, epigastropine, nausea, vomiting. Uh, so usually you're not gonna, the endoscopy is really gonna be what's gonna help you and the endoscopy isn't something you're gonna do for somebody that comes with nausea and vomiting. There's gonna be other things that you need to do. See, the most common uh, uh, clinical manifestation is when somebody actually has some sort of ulcer and they're throwing up the blood, okay? So almost like uh, those patients that we were talking about yesterday about the esophageal varices, if that blood sits around long enough, it'll start turning, you know, clotting out, start turning black. So when you throw it up, it'll come out coffee ground emesis. So you may not get straight up vomiting of blood or hematemesis with uh, somebody that has a gastritis or erosive gastritis. It's probably sitting there for a little bit, so those patients are probably gonna get coffee ground emesis. Along with that, you're gonna get melanin as well, which is the black stools, okay? So anytime you see that, you do have to do the rectal exam and you have to do the what we call the stool guaiac, um, which if you ever, come to uh, be a student with me, you're definitely gonna be doing a bunch of rectal stuff. I don't like doing them anymore, so uh, you probably end up doing it. Um, so erosive gastritis is superficial, so no hemodynamically uh, significant bleeding. You may may or may not see a low hemoglobin in that case, okay? So I'm glad the three guys are gonna find that super awesome. Can't wait. <laughs> um, so acute gastritis with superficial erosion. So here, again, like I said, I like putting up pictures like this, but you can kind of sort of tell, I, can't do this with the, uh, this thing, it disappears, but. Um, That's too far. <laughs> so, um, you see where like the veins are almost like popping out a little bit, That's, those are your little erosions, so you can kind of tell what's happening there. Okay, so we're gonna kind of take the same approach as we do if it's something that, that has GERD or, or reflux disease or any sort of dyspepsia. If it's somebody young, we're just gonna take our time with this, right? We don't have, we don't have much to worry about. So. What we're gonna do with those patients is basically we'll maybe run a urea breath test or a fecal antigen test for H. pylori because that's you know the, one of the most common causes, right? Um, and then if it starts to get worse, then you could do a CBC. So you look for anemia, uh, and I said like with a phlegmon, you'll see some leukocytosis, so these are things to keep in mind, okay? Um, if you wanna get really down to it and see exactly what's going on and all these other things, 
they don't come up with any sort of answers, then you could do an endoscopy for that patient as well. While you're there, you need to take a biopsy of at least four different spots in order for us to determine that this is gonna be an H. pylori, okay? So the biopsy during the endoscopy, and remember that end, the endoscopy biopsy of the H. pylori is definitive, okay? It's not the urea test, it's not the fecal antigen, it's the biopsy for H. pylori that helps us determine um, if this is truly a H. pylori. So serum vitamin B12, again, remember when I told you that uh, if you see any, you know, when you start looking at CBC and you have a low H and H, you have to look at the MCV, right? So if it's a microcytic anemia, you need to know which part of the stomach is probably affected. If it's a macrocytic anemia for vitamin B12 and folate, then we, we know exactly what we're dealing with. And it could be also autoimmune at that time as well, okay? So an upper GI series, <clears throat> could, you could do, that's basically your barium studies. So again, at that point, you know, we're starting to rule out anybody that's gonna have an esophageal spasm or a um, achalasia, so those kind of things you wanna take a look at also, right? So you could do blood fluid cultures, positive infectious agent, but this is now getting deep into these things, and by this time, your clinical uh, intellect and your knowledge should have already prevailed, all these other tests, so we should have already gone to the diagnosis by this time. So other differentials, peptic ulcer disease, which we're gonna talk about as well. We see a lot of these symptoms are also like GERD. Uh, gastric cancer can all of that has always got to be one of your differentials, especially in the setting of weight loss, uh, and you know, nausea and these not specific symptoms, you gotta be thinking about that. Biliary tract disease, food poisoning, viral gastroenteritis, those are two different things, okay? Uh, just because I eat the same thing and you eat the same thing and we both vomit, doesn't mean it's viral, that means there's something in the food, okay? But if you and I didn't really share the same food, but we were just hanging out together and sharing other things, then yeah, it's probably like viral gastroenteritis, right? You can put to your imagination what you're sharing, all right? So functional dyspepsia and also esophageal varices or Mallory Weiss tears, which we're gonna be talking about just a little bit more today also. If there is severe amount of pain, so this is why it's important, what, what grade is your, your, your pain at? Right? It's this uh, one out of 10, what's your pain? So if they see like three or four, we're kind of chilling at that moment, right? We can like take our time. But they're saying like, yo, this is nine out of 10, or the biggest one down in Miami is 12 out of 10, because I don't know, we don't know how to do math, but we're super dramatic, right? So this, oh, this is 12 out of 10. Okay, so 10 out of 10, I've never been pregnant, but I just witnessed it like three weeks ago. That's 10 out of 10. Uh, like, I looked at it, I'm like, yeah, I can't do that. No, there's no way, and I always tell this all the time, Mostly PA schools are filled with women. I can't be a woman. There's no way you could. I could. It's not gonna happen. I'm not gonna push anything out of my body. I'm probably not gonna let anything come in my body. To be honest with you, also because that's just it. Uh, I'm not trying to bleed every three weeks. It's not gonna happen. So, congratulations to all you women. Like, I already know the things you deal with, and good for you. Uh, getting back to school. So, no, yeah, no. Seriously, appreciate it. <laughs> I have so many more comments after that. I'm just gonna let it go. Stuart, what time is it? What eleven? No, no. Give me a little bit more. I'll get back. Uh, so if we do have this this immense amount of pain, you have to measure that. You have to tell them, you know, one out of ten. What is it? And I cut people off right after that, especially if it's a man. Oh, yo, this is twelve out of ten. No, it's not. Ten out of ten is pregnancy. He's like. It's that. No, you've never been pregnant, so you can't say that. So, max, I'm giving you 9 out of 10. Max. And 9 out of 10, the only thing you can tell them, have you ever had a kidney stone before? Because women will tell you that, hey, I've been pregnant and I've had a kidney stone. And it's like the same thing. 
Yeah. And so, see? <laughs> <laughs> up, see? And so then if they say that, no, I've never had a kidney stone either, eight out of 10, you're not gonna get anything else. <laughs> Automatic discount, okay? So, but take for with them. A lot of times, they're so much in pain that they won't tell you. They're just like, I, I don't know, bro, but whatever you want, I'm dying. You know, if that's the thing you're worried about right now, this is because this is one of the important things also. When you're doing clinical rotations, you're asking somebody, how much pain are you? And they're like, ah, yeah, that looks like a lot. Okay, and that's it, don't be there. So I need an answer, one. I've seen students just stay there, be like, eight out of 10, no, no, just stop, move on, okay? But then you have to understand that they're giving you this severe amount of pain and they look like they're in a lot of pain. Uh, take that, okay, because it could be something else. It could be a perforated, you know, um, Hollis like viscous, it could be something going on, like a penetrating ulcer, a perforated stomach, a perforated colon, pancreatic disease. Remember I told you pancreatitis comes out with a lot of abdominal pain as well. I told you esophageal ruptures, ruptured aortic aneurysm. If you're sitting there asking them one out of 10 and there's a ruptured aortic aneurysm, they're gonna die. So that's not the biggest worry, right? So like I said, gastric bulbulus, gastrointestinal ischemia, myocardial ischemia, uh, when we talk about gastrointestinal ischemia, we're going to talk about it a little bit later, but it's specifically like mesenteric ischemia. They give you like what we call poop, pain out of proportion. Okay, like there's so, in so much pain that you're like, what else could it be? So it doesn't really add up to everything else that's happening. Right. So the treatment, if it's stress gastritis, we basically just tell you guys, hey, take a proton pump inhibitor or take a Pepsid, and you're going to be okay. Maybe don't eat so much spicy food during the day or during the night. Uh, don't drink alcohol in between your breaks. Is that still a thing, you guys? Uh, I'm not gonna get into that time. No. Anyway, yeah. actually I will. So, uh -huh. back when I was in school, here, across the street there was a, a nice little Mexican restaurant that was called Tres Amigos. Mm -hmm. And so I was really young, I was like 21, not even, I think I was like 20, so I couldn't drink yet. And when I was in PA school, so imagine. And then, so I would always put like older people, they're like 27, to me at that time that's older. So 27, I'm like 40 year olds, and they're just going out there to drink and stuff, but like during the break of the A school. So they'll come back and they're just like uh, watching pharmacology and they're like gone, wasted. And then the guy will give a lecture on like gastritis and I'm just like looking at these idiots and I'm like, man, you guys are having a lot more fun I am. I wish I could have gastritis. Break that down. So don't drink on your breaks is the, is the answer to that, okay? Now, Wow, oh, damn it. So, if you have somebody that's actively bleeding, if I make you remember any dosages of anything, they're not going to ask you in the pants, but this I will ask you because clinically it's pretty, pretty significant. So if you have somebody with an upper GI bleed, you do need to know the dose of pantoprolzol. It's 80 milligrams IV bolus, okay? Followed by eight milligrams per hour continuous infusion while they're in the hospital, but you need to know those numbers because it's very, very important. Esomeprazole, uh, I can't tell you exactly the dose of that, but I know pantoprazole is a dose that you need to remember, is a medication that you need to remember. Um, I don't test you on it because they don't test you on it in the pants. So I'm not gonna ask you something they wouldn't ask you in the pants, but you will get this answer or question in your rotations. They'll tell you like, okay, the patient's basically vomiting up blood, what do you wanna do, right? And I don't want you to get caught you know, not knowing what to do because they don't ask you on the pants. So if it's NSAIDs gastritis, we uh, will help us determine that because we're gonna ask them like, oh, have you been taking this medication? Or have you been taking anything for pain? I'll also assume just because they don't take this pain medication or this 
medication every day. Like nobody should take a Motrin every day, right? Uh, because even aspirin doesn't cause this much, it's coated, so it doesn't really cause so much gastritis. But talking about what else are you dealing with right now? I'm like, yeah, man, I got this sore ankle that I've been dealing with. I've been popping like three Motrins, but I don't take that on a regular. It's just like the last two weeks I've been taking a lot of it. Okay, that makes sense. So no, it's not your hypertensive medication or your diabetic medication, but you also made that assumption, which you shouldn't make a lot of assumptions, but you should make connections that, okay, this guy has pain, he's been taking this medication. Well, medications are like, oh, I don't know, ibuprofen or no sé qué, and then that's what it is. So you have to understand that, okay, well, how much are that? Like, well, four of them don't work for me, so I take six at a time, but I do space them out every eight hours. Yeah, you're still taking about three grams more than the recommended dose. Right, which is gonna burn a hole through your stomach, like we said, right? So you can take as many foods as you want. You're gonna kill your stomach with that. So with them, we're also going to, uh, this is also what I told you yesterday, if you have like an elderly patient, remember that their stomach lining is also a little weak. If you have to give them a, uh, an NSAID, lower the dose of the NSAID, and then give them a PPI to go home with as well. So that can help them out also, and tell them to take a little food. If it's alcoholic gastritis, uh, try not to drink alcohol, or better don't drink alcohol. Uh, and then you also give them like a proton pump inhibitor. The H2 receptor antagonists, we talked about them yesterday, those are like promotidine, so like cuts it. Uh, and you can also give them sulcophate. I don't really get sulcophate too much. People like using it, I, I think it's okay. If it's portal hypertension gastritis, what do we gotta do? Lower the, lower the portal pressure, right? And we talked about giving a cure type for that. We talked about the TIPS procedure that can help them out with that. We talked about giving um, you know, uh, beta blockers, calcium channel blockers, and even nitroglycerin to help us out with that so. so here is H. pylori. I do want to just kind of like briefly look over this. This kind of helps us know what's going on and how, which approach to take and how H. pylori will occur. I'm not gonna harp too much on this one, but there's one that I do need you to know more. Here's the thing with H. pylori. So you do have to suspect it because if it is present, it is also precancerous too, okay? So it can go from asymptomatic gastritis to somebody getting cancer from this also because again, this messes around with the lining of the esophagus, and we've already talked about it. if we mess around with the lining of the esophagus, dysplasia can occur, and then you're gonna have really bad looking cancer. Um, and we saw that with Barrett's esophagus as well, right? So uh, it's gonna be in the antrum of the, uh, of the stomach, so 95%, so this usually does predispose them to duodenal uh, ulcers. Um, corpus gastritis predisposes them to gastric ulcers. There, remember, again, H. pylori is a carcinogen, so don't just play around with it. Treat it right off the back, and we'll talk about the treatments in a little bit as well. Um, again, it can cause gastric cancer and also multiple lymphoma, which is not something that shows up quite often uh, on my exam or even on the day of your pants, but it's something that you should know, and I would take some time to look up that on the side. So sequence of gastritis, atrophy, intestinal uh, metaplasia, which then comes turns into dysplasia, like I said, and then eventually carcinoma. So that's the kind of like the route. Uh, and that's basically my version of pathophysiology, what happens, okay? So the testing, again, urea breath test, fecal antigen test, all those things can be uh, you know, useful in, in a non-endoscopic uh, you know, setting, um, but also you could also do another test four weeks after you've treated the patient to confirm that you have officially eradicated it. If you haven't eradicated it, then you can go ahead and give them like a quadruple therapy. And we always start off with triple therapy, and then if we need to, we will go do a quadruple therapy in those patients, okay? So these are the different testings available for H. pylori, and this basically just tells you the advantages and the disadvantages of all of them. Um, so again, we can do the histology, which again, this is right there to the site of action, 
you take a biopsy, obviously it's the most uh, you know, accurate way, but the problem is that it's expensive and you know, just to find out if you have H. pylori, when I can do something else. So then you start thinking like, well, you know, we could do this fecal antigen test or the urea breath test, it's not as accurate, but if it comes back positive, it's pretty sensitive, so it's you know, pretty specific. It's got about a 92 to 95% rate, so obviously it's not gonna be that 99 or 100% that you'll get on a biopsy, but it still helps us and it saves us about $3,000. So it's 40 bucks to $3,000 you do the math. And if you don't know math, then I don't know what you're doing here. But anyway, so again, culturing it, you can do the PCRs on these patients as well, but uh, it kind of kind of changes based off of you know when they present and how they present. So the specificity and the sensitivity on that is not really that accurate. This is the slide that you need to worship and pray before you go to sleep every night because this shows up no matter what test you're gonna get, no matter what pants you're gonna take, what version of the pants you're gonna take. This is gonna be on Broch, it's gonna be on Kaplan, it's gonna be on U World, My World, everything. So this is something you do need to remember, okay? And so the way that I remember this is cap, right? So clarithromycin, amoxicillin, and a PPI. So uh, the way that, the PPI for me, the one that I remember all the time is omeprazole, right? That's the one that's most commonly used, so we like to use that one. Um, the treatment is usually seven to 10 days, but you can go up to 14 days on these patients. It is the preferred one. That first one that we have there is the preferred one. The second line, so let's say you do something for a patient and they don't get any better. Uh, you, you have to make sure that, okay, well, you know, we're just going to go ahead and do a quadruple therapy. And a lot of times what you're basically dealing with then is do you want to add a bismuth to it or you don't want to add a bismuth to it, okay? So I don't really like to ask questions on quadruple therapy because it's not commonly used. So I do take the route of uh, triple therapy. So in case you ever see that, we usually do like to go with triple therapy. If they're allergic to uh, um, penicillins, I think it says it here also that if you're allergic to penicillin, you can just take it with clorithromycin. Metronidazole, and then uh, the PPI. <coughs> All right, this is the chart here that I think you should take a look at, so it kind of helps you determine uh, what you should do initially for the patient, and based on what they're presenting with, do you go the triple therapy route, or do you go the quadruple therapy route? Again, I think you should take a look at this. This is not gonna be on my exam, but this is something that you should take a look at, and um, it is something that may come up on the pants as well. So uh, clinically, you'll need this, and I think in the day of the pants, you also will need this as well. So this is again that same slide. And I know I tell you guys don't use uh, up to date, but this is definitely right off the bat from up to date. <coughs> okay, so um, peptic ulcer disease. So 90% or 80 to 90% of these patients will have some sort of dyspepsia happening as well. And it's usually gonna be, may or may not be with the, with the type of meals that they're having also. So the ulcer symptoms characterized by rhythmicity and periodicity, like usually after this, or it happens during this, like usually, it's gonna be, it's gonna give you some sort of pattern as well, okay? Uh, usually, like I said, when they're, it's from NSAID induced, we're probably not gonna see any of those symptoms until much later. So if you do, doing an endoscopy and you find all this erosion, you're like, wait, where did this come from? And then they'll admit to you after they wake up from the endoscopy that, oh yeah, by the way, I take a lot of NSAIDs throughout the day because I have peripheral neuropathy. So, upper endoscopy with gastric biopsy for H. pylori is the diagnostic procedure of choice in most patients because one of the most common cause of peptic ulcer disease is H. pylori. Okay, and then after that, it's going to be alcohol and your um, NSAIDs. Okay, so PUD, the most common cause, is going to be H. pylori, alcohol, and NSAIDs. Okay, so a gastric ulcer biopsy or documentation of complete healing is necessary 
to exclude any sort of gastric malignancy. Okay, so you have to make sure that we do do a biopsy, make sure that it is this and it's not cancer. That's very important when we're thinking about peptic ulcer disease. Okay. So basically what's happening is with an ulcer, there's a break in the mucous membrane, all right? Um, and then so there could be a balance between protective and aggressive factors, and I think this just gets more into uh, like the pathophysiology of it, but just understand that it also is just a breakthrough of the whole, that first layer of the skin. So, the breakdown of peptic ulcer disease, again, there's a, like excessive amount of acid, which causes an ulceration, and then eventually causes esophagitis, causing you to have reflux, and then fatty diarrhea, so scatalia in those patients. That's just kind of like a breakdown one, two, three of what happens, okay? This is exactly what your, um, your stomach, or the beginning part of your stomach starts to look like, when you give an elderly patient NSAIDs without a proton pump inhibitor. This is what you're looking at. So right there in the beginning, the antrum of the stomach, you can see those shallow, like white areas, um, and they're starting to erode. And so that's exactly what that looks like. So otherwise, that looks pretty benign, but it's not. This is something that can perforate. This is something that can cause a lot more problems later on. You can see that the ulcerations are beginning. This could probably go into dysplasia and then eventually cause some cancer as well. So um, if you see this, this is something that we need to take care of uh, almost immediately. So again, it could be entirely asymptomatic. If not, they could have some epigastric uh, pain. Um, and the pain that they're gonna tell you, so again, what kind of pain? Can you describe me the character of the pain? They're gonna say it's kind of like dull, kind of almost like if I'm feeling like if I'm hungry. And that's what you're looking at in these kind of patients, okay, when they have PED. So the relief does happen with an antiacid, but then again, it'll reoccur in two to four hours. Especially if they tell you that, oh, I have pain when I eat, like 30 minutes right after I eat, that's peptic ulcer disease. So the first thing is the pain. Then if they tell you that the pain gets better after that, that's a duodenal ulcer, because usually the pain is gonna get better after you eat uh, with a duodenal ulcer. Okay, very important. So pain right off the back is peptic ulcer disease. Pain, uh, uh, pain that gets better it's going to be dual adrenal ulcers. Okay, very, very important. So gastric tends to worsen with food. Uh, uh, we already talked about that. Change from typical rhythmic discomfort or constipating pain, and then it could also have a, a penetration or perforation. <laughs> think about that. So if they start saying that the pain went from dull, now it's sharp and it's burning and it's stabbing like pain, then we got to uh, run to the gun a little bit quicker. Okay? So nausea, vomiting can occur, especially if there's a gastric ulcer. And again, it could be localized pain. In, on your physical examination, they could also have a um, like generalized uh, tenderness as well. And you could also have a foreign uh, obstructed body there as well. So positive in one third of the patients, so they may have that as well, okay? So these patients, FOBT is a fecal, uh, fecal occult blood test, okay? So basically when we uh, will do the rectal exam again, um, and it may just like brown stool, but then when we put it on the paper and put the developer on it, it'll shine up blue. If it shines up blue, then we got a problem. That means this patient has some blood products in their stool eventually, and it's microscopic, but we're able to pick it up with the developer. So diagnostic test, again, um, in an uncomplicated patient, we're probably gonna just find everything unremarkable, right? This is why, this is most of the patients that come in to either the emergency room or your, or your primary care office where they'll come in, I've had this abdominal pain for the past two weeks. The fact that you waited two weeks to come here, I know there's not nothing right? Because if it was something serious, you would have been dead by now, right? So it's been going on for two weeks, nothing really going on. Um, if there is some like blood loss, if there's some sort of bleeding, then yeah, you'll see some anemia. If there's a phlegmon in there, we'll see some leukocytosis like we talked about. Um, it says here the amylase is going to be elevated in the, uh, in the pancreatic, uh, patient, uh, pancreatic case, 
I'll tell you the light base is a lot more sensitive and a lot more specific uh, when it comes to uh, pancreatic diseases, not amylase, okay? So you could order amylases as much as you want. You're wasting your time, you're wasting the patient's money. Just go with the lipase. Even if you're doing a, uh, an eye case with me, if you do the eye case and you order the lipase and they're like, no, you should order amylase, screw what they said. It's, an amylase, uh, it's a lipase that you want to order, okay? So we also have to be thinking about, you know, if there's somebody that's having refractory, uh, you know, dyspepsia or refractory reflux disease and we don't know what's going on, uh, we do have to do a gastrin level because elevated levels of gastrin, uh, specifically I think more than 250, is indicative of somebody that has a Zollinger-Ellison syndrome or a, uh, or, a, or a mass either in the stomach or somewhere around the stomach. And that basically is releasing heavy levels of gastrin, which is causing them to have those dyspepsia-like uh, symptoms. So again, we'll do an upper endoscopy, which is obviously the procedure choice in these patients. The biopsy will help us because again, it's gonna help us determine is this H. pylori, is this going to be uh, you know, a cancer or something else going on, and if we can get negative on both, then we just treat them with the antacids that we want to give them. So you can do an abdominal CT to rule out perforation, and we're gonna do this with IV contrast. I wouldn't give somebody oral contrast in this because then you're just gonna spill it out, especially if you think there's a perforation. So if you're looking for a perforation, you should be doing oral contrast. You honestly should not be doing oral contrast for anybody. It doesn't make much sense. You can find the same things with an IV contrast only. Um, I, the only time I've ever given oral contrast in my career is when I know somebody has like constipation and they're stool impacted and that drink makes you go to the bathroom. So I basically just give them that and do a CT scan at the same time. But again, those are like side clinical like perks. Uh, anybody that has a penetrating injury or an obstruction, again, you don't want to you know, give them any sort of um, you know gastrin or or galanidium or whatever it is that you're trying to give them because then they'll swallow it and they'll throw it right back up, especially if there's an obstruction. So you just do a CT scan with IV contrast, it'll illuminate everything, and then it'll also be able to rule out any sort of like masses or anything else like that. And IV contrast is very good in ruling out sort of masses. <coughs> okay. So complications, again, uh, with peptic ulcer disease bleeding, which is again the most common, it's about 15% of the cases. <coughs> so you'll see vomiting up of blood, uh, melena or hematochesia, depending on where the, the bleeding is. If it's usually distal stomach, you're probably just gonna get red stools, okay? So a cold blood uh, manifested as iron deficiency anemia is less common. So you could do a CBC and then you're gonna have a low hemoglobin hematocrit and that MCD might be pretty much unremarkable. So don't get too caught up with that. Uh, bleeding is more common if they are using NSAIDs and they're more than 60 years old. So you see this is a very common correlation that we discovered that when we give old people NSAIDs, they tend to bleed into their stomach. It's a very, very common thing, so we have to protect them from that. So penetration, perforation, and gastric outlet obstruction syndrome can also be complications of a peptic ulcer disease. So look into the patient that has sudden severe pain, hemodynamic compromise basically just means that their blood pressure is low, their heart rate is high, they may have fever, like I said, hypotension, tachycardia, um, absent bowel sounds, okay? But if we're thinking about an obstruction, I'll tell you the first thing you hear on an obstruction it's hyperactive bowel sounds, okay? So if you're thinking about an obstruction and you hear hyperactive bowel sounds, that does not rule out an obstruction. It actually could be the beginning of an obstruction, all right? So having hypoactive or absent bowel sounds, yes, there is an obstruction, but prior to that, there was hyperactive bowel sounds. So don't just rule it out, it's not that specific. Um, guarding, so anytime you touch them, they're just like holding onto their stomach. Rebound tenderness, every time I lift my finger off, they still have pain from there as well. You can see that if we're, uh, you haven't done physical exam lab yet. You guys done palpation of the abdomen yet? So yeah. there's something, yes? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay, so have you guys done like the appendicitis signs? Yeah. 
Okay. All right. So one thing with appendicitis, and you're going to learn all three or four of them. So like the McBurney point tenderness, and then there's the iliosolas, and then there's the the obturator sign, and then on the other one that you need to remember is the Roxing sign. So Roxing sign is the is the left lower quadrant. I press on the left lower quadrant, lift my finger, and the pain goes to the right lower quadrant. That's a rebound tenderness also. So something to think about. And the, pa and the patient that has acute pancreatitis, again, um, this is a complication you have to be on top of. Pancreatitis can become lethal and they do need to be admitted. Remember the test that you're gonna be doing is a lipase test for those patients. Most of the times there's really no antibiotics. I'm gonna talk about pancreatitis in a little bit also. There's no antibiotics with these patients. It's just fluid hydration, fluid hydration, fluid hydration. Make sure you can take care of the pain and then they can go home eventually after that. But you do have to monitor them because they can get lethal as well. Um, so the differentials again, it could be functional dyspepsia, just good old GERD, pancreatitis like we talked about, cholecystitis, cholodocolithiasis, uh, if you don't know what that is, basically now that's an obstruction in the biliary tract, okay? So you, you gotta know all the colds. You gotta know cholelithiasis, cholecystitis, cholodocolithiasis, you gotta know those three, uh, because those are very commonly brought up in the boards, okay? Um, esophageal ruptures, gastric volvulus, um, and again, gastrointestinal ischemia, like I said, we talk about mesenteric ischemia as well or a ruptured aortic aneurysm, all right? Uh, so the treatment here is gonna be your anti-secretory agents, so your PPIs, your H2 blockers. You could also give them business sulcrophate, uh, uh, anti-acids as well, uh, but they're not usually first line. I, a lot of people like to, for peptic ulcer disease, also give like Bentol, which is a dicyclamine. That's more for like the contractions you get. It's not really for like the peptic ulcer disease pain, so it doesn't really work that well. Uh, but again, that's just a clinical, clinical thing. All right, well, what time are we at? 4.34. Oh my God, I almost stopped somebody's recording. Sorry. Sorry. Oh, okay, that's not my phone. <laughs> <laughs> and now that's recording. All right, cool. One thirty-four. so let's do five more minutes. Right. Gastric, you guys got any class after this? Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's good. I'm gonna try to send you home early, but all right. Uh, okay, so I don't know, again, this one shows up kind of like this as well, so just kind of decrease the font if you can, and it'll show a few more in there, okay? So gastroparesis, okay? Uh, basically now you're, just think about your stomach going to paralysis, right? It's not moving, okay? There's not contracting, it's not relaxing, it's not, it's not doing anything. So basically you're just kind of stuck. The food is just kind of stuck, okay? So it could again be autonomic, it could be other things happening, it could be from an obstruction, it could be anything, okay? So basically it's a delayed gastric emptying. Things are not getting out of there. Very common in your patient that are type one diabetics, uh, and also the other patients that are, uh, have functional dyspepsia as well. Most of these patients are unfortunately women, okay? So you guys, again, you do a lot. Uh, so I already told you, predominant causes is idiopathic. When we see something's idiopathic, it's because we're idiots and we don't know the pathology. And that's where we got the word idiopathic, okay? So diabetes, again, very common. Postoperatively, this is also very common as well because we remember that when we're giving anesthesia to somebody, we're just relaxing everything. You think we're just knocking them out and they're just chilling. Everything is chilling, okay? So the cilia in your intestines are frozen. The, the stomach is frozen. Everything autonomically is kind of chilling and that's why you need to be intubated because nobody's really breathing so we have to breathe for you, okay? So. What happens with that is something that's called a, uh, an ileus. You could actually get a paralytic ileus, okay? So that's why it's important um, that when you do have a patient come out of surgery, 
you have to wait for them to pass gas or you have to wait for them to have a bowel movement. Before it was like we had to wait for a bowel movement, but now just having them pass gas is perfectly fine because now we know things are moving and they can go ahead and go home. If not, if they start eating right off the back, there's nothing moving, so it's gonna come right back up and your body's not gonna be happy with that. And that, that vomiting is intense because nothing really made you, made you vomit, it's you. You were like literally turning yourself over to just take it out. There's nothing squeezing, there's nothing contracting, there's nothing refluxing, nothing. It's you taking that out on your own because everything else is frozen. So be very careful in the post-operative patients because again, 20%, I would say it's more than that. We just are in a rush to get people out, especially nowadays, right? Like the hospital's filled, we gotta get you people out. Uh, not our problem. The patient still needs to be treated the same, right? So you have to pass gas, and not just burping, they have to, they have to pass gas, they have to fart, they have to move. Okay, and one of the ways is if they can move, if they can post-operatively move, I was telling this via yesterday too, if you can get the patient to walk and chew gum at the same time, what that does is allow gas to go inside, so more gas build up, more gas build up, and then it starts to release out. So that's one of the tricks that you can do as well. Um, water can help, so walking in water also moves things along, but we have to be careful with how much water we give them, because that might just reflux back out since it's not getting absorbed, okay? So be mindful of that. Eating disorders, okay? Uh, multiple eating disorders that can happen with this. Parkinson's disease, again, everything's kind of shut down. Renal failure, scleroderma, and um, I'm not even gonna guess what the one on the bottom says. Huh? Viral infections, but also, but also uh, thyroid problems. Is thyroid problems in there as well? No. All right, so thyroid, obviously, right? Which one, which thyroid problem, which give me a problem with moving things along? Hypothyroidism, right? These are, things are kind of like moving slow. So you can get constipation, but you can also sometimes get gastroparesis. Very, uh, not very common, but you know, it's something that can occur as well. So the clinical picture again, nausea, vomiting, bloating, right? Postprandial fullness is very, very, the big key word here. Postprandial fullness, like as soon as I eat even a little bit, I get super full. That's because nothing is moving, right? So you may also get weight loss because you can't eat, you can't, move anything down so you can't eat, so you're not gonna wanna eat, you're obviously gonna get abdominal discomfort. You could also hear a succussion splash, which I'm not sure if you guys, again, I don't think have done that either. So basically when you, um, when you put the, the, the stethoscope on the person's stomach, you could hear the splash, like literally, like you can hear the splash and it moving around. And that really lets you know that there's some sort of like obstruction happening with the patient as well. And it's usually, the next thing you probably hear is some hyperactive bowel sounds as well, okay? So the diagnosis is going to be based off of the history again. Hey, did you just come out of surgery? Uh, you know, is there something else going on with you? Did you have any other medical problems? Are you diabetic? You know, all these things are really important. We may need to do an upper endoscopy to make sure that there's no mechanical obstruction and now we're not just dealing with a good old regular autoimmune or something else, gastroparesis, okay? So a lot of times, you know, retained food overnight um, is highly suggestive. Like you, you go and do an endoscopy and that thing doesn't look like they just had it like three minutes ago. So you, if you can still see the products, that's not a good sign because I mean something's not working here and it's not moving along, okay? So diagnosis confirmed by gastric scintigraphy. This is a very important, uh, very important diagnostic imaging that you need to know about gastroparesis. And then retention of more than 10% at four hours is abnormal, whatever content that they're giving them at that time. So the the imaging of choice for gastroparesis is a gastric scintography. This is a nuclear medicine examination. Okay, 
things you need to discontinue before you do a, a scintography are opioid analgesics, obviously, because they stop everything. Anticholinergic agents, this is one of those medications I was telling you about, like the bento or the dicyclamine, you need to stop it. Metroclopramide, it's something that we definitely need to stop, and we actually don't give that even if we're <coughs> concerned with an obstruction anyway, so we're not gonna give you uh, metroclopramide anyway, uh, and then erythromycin. And the bottom statement there kind of tells you how they do a gastric antithesintography, uh, and then I'll let you go into that because I'm not gonna really test you how they do it. This is not radiology. So the management of these patients, you basically have to eat what we should all be eating, right? Uh, low fat, which should probably increase the diet a little, uh, the fiber a little bit, but low fat, low fiber, smaller frequent meals, right? Uh, so it's not, nobody says you can't eat, you just can't eat as much as you would like to. Not that you want to, not that you would like to. Um, so uh, replace solids with uh, nutrient drinks in severe cases, so uh, a lot of times you'll see these patients with insurance or some protein shake. And not like the high-end protein shakes, you know, but like, like the lower end, like Insure would be where you want them to be at. Because it depends on the type of protein that's in the protein shake that makes a difference as well. It's like if you have casein protein, that takes a little bit longer and, and, and to digest. So they're never gonna get out, they'll be super nauseated with that. So be, be careful with knowing which type of protein you're giving that patient as well. Uh, okay, so here are the medications that you can give for them, but again, remember, we're gonna stop these medications prior to the scintography, but these are the medications that you're gonna give as a treatment. Um, the top two medications are really the ones that you really need to know, because those are really the only ones that are available to us in the United States at this time. Okay, okay so I am going to take a break before we talk about cancer. What slide number are we on? 43. Yeah? Let's do it. So you guys could take like a 20 minute break if you wanted to. Yeah. No, that's next week. To what? I can finish by 2.30. Yeah, tell them I'm still texting. I'm still texting. No, I'm sorry, I want to. Perfect. Thank you. You guys have any exams next week? No. Oh, you're chilling. So, like, go home and enjoy. Enjoy the night, man. Do your thing. Yeah. Yes. Absolutely. There's so much to do here. I can tell you that because I'm not doing anything. <laughs>
mean about these times, like with this COVID thing? You always get like a little reason to like, take advantage of people. Like I have one of my friends, he's like, I need a PA student coming in next year. He's like, hey, if you guys need any uh, at-home test kits, let me know, I'll come by. I charge only a small fee, like, you stop. We only have like 20 slides left, right? Yes. Everybody else good? You guys good? You guys feeling good? You're okay? This is like the headache? Yeah, that tends to happen with my yeah. <laughs> my wife says the same thing. She's like, go no away. Go teach. You want to say something? I was going to say about the COVID stuff. You were saying a story about COVID. What story about COVID? I thought you were going to say why you hate it. Oh, yeah. So, like, there's people now. So, I have one friend that is super awesome. He, I had a, uh, this is a weird story, but, like, my ex-wife, one of the friends that she works with, she's an, she's an older lady, but, like, I always help her out, like, with, like, you know, her husband, you know, they need anything, and they brought me in, like, as almost like their son, uh, but I still keep in touch with them, right, regardless of what happened to my ex, whatever, but, so, her husband has, like, COPD and, like, really intense, right, so she was calling me, she was desperate, I was like, hey, look, he's got COVID, we were protective, we didn't know what happened, and I'm like, all right, don't worry about it, and so, um, it's like, hey, there's, there's this PA, he's going around and he's giving Regeneron to people. And I'm like, well, this guy's legit carrying gold right now because like there's no Regeneron left anywhere and hospitals don't have it. So I, I called him up, he was my student from 2016. And I'm like, yo, is this you? Is this the PA that they're talking about? He's like, yeah, it's me. What's up, man? Do you want some stuff? I'm like, first of all, <laughs> <laughs> that's what I'm saying. I was like, first of all, I know you got the stuff, but I just, could you help these people? I was like, oh, I'm not charging people. I'm not charging people. I'm just like, if you know, like family, friends, and things like that, and they're like high risk and like that, I'll come and do it. Uh, but like, try not to send me people that don't really need it because I really am just holding on to the supply to give to the people. And I was like, that's what I'm talking about. That's what I'm talking about. That's what I'm talking about. Like, this is what it's about, right? But I have this other kid um, that he put so, at my mosque today, they're doing like testing for free for people of every, ethnicity, race, color, whatever. They're doing it at my mosque, and I thought that was cool or whatever. But then the same, there's this kid that he also goes to our mosque, and he's like, hey, if anybody needs any testing and don't want to wait in the line at the mosque, let me know, I got you. And so I was like, oh, that's so good that he's doing so, you know, so nice. He's like, also, there's a fee because, uh, you know, there's no line. <laughs> I'm like, dude, you're an ass. Like, and I told this kid, so here's the thing. I don't know if I've spoke to any of you about this. Like, if I ever help somebody, they always like, Oh, I'm so grateful. Thank you, uh, and, and you know I, I always appreciate the food because Maram gave me like a crap load of brownies and all the I time. I, I would never say no to that. It was all Cook Egyptian. All the Egyptian food that I was like super into. <laughs> but other than that, like when somebody tells me like, "Hey, thank you so much for talking to me, for guiding me, for writing this letter, this and that," how can I ever repay you? And my response is always, "Do it for someone else. <laughs> Do it for someone else. Like pay for it. like." That is the only way that I feel like you can thank me. Like, somebody comes to you, and you're in PA school, and somebody tells you, like, hey, can you help me out? Don't be like, yo, man, I'm, I'm busy right now. Like, that was you. That was you not too long ago. You, you can't be too busy for that, because they're, like, on the bottom. And trust me, even if you don't think that they can make it, like, they're not going to be a good student, just do your part, because 
they did a really good job in this class specifically filtering out already a lot of people that I'm like, okay, thank God they didn't pick that person, thank God they didn't that. Because I don't see any of the people that I didn't want. Everybody that I wanted was here, for sure. For sure, I can tell you that right now. Uh, and then the idea is to get back. So I told this kid, and he's in, I will point him out when he comes to school because he got in. You got in this time. Um, and I'm also going to call your friend Sunday. All right, cool, perfect. So the, I told him that, he's like, yo, how could I repay you? Listen, man, and he's like a, he's like a hustler. So you know, he's 23-year-old, they're just trying to find money from wherever. So he, he's like, yo, I know you like to cook and like to grill. I got this 10-pound brisket that I'm going to hook you up with. And I'm like, the hell kind of deal is that? I write you a letter of commendation, you give me a brisket? So I, was like, so I was like, no, listen, man. What I want you to do is give back. Whenever you can, just give back. Help somebody with the letter of commendation. Help guide them through PA school, just now. And so what he did, he did. He sent me somebody that is also trying to get in this class, whatever. But then now I'm like, hey, man, you didn't learn anything from me. He's like, what do you mean? I sent you that other person. I was like, you sent me more help. <laughs> but that didn't work. And he's like, and I was like, so why are you charging people? He's like, bro, I gotta pay for gas. And so I was like, listen, man, just whoever you go to, don't charge them. I'll pay for your gas. Like, just make sure people have this stuff because, like, this is this is the time. Like, I was just thinking about this right now, and then we're gonna get into lectures. I promise. Just thinking about this right, like, right now. Like, when COVID happened, we were all supposed to come together on Zoom or whatever, but like we were supposed to come together. What did we do instead? We started drifting apart. We started labeling this life matters and that life matters and all life matters. It's, it's so stupid. Like only us humans would not be able to come together and take on something. Like I feel like COVID was the enemy that we're just like, all right guys, what do we all need to do now? And then some of us are like, we should all go out there and give it to each other and fight those people and those because COVID doesn't exist because vaccines are not needed. This is a, I don't care what you believe in, but understand, like, this was the moment for us to prevail. And we didn't. Like, I was just like, all right, well, mess that up. And so, you know, that's the thing. Yes. Have you watched the movie Don't Look Up? Download what? Don't Look Up. Oh, God, that sounds horrible. It sounds like a scary movie. I don't do scary movies. You know what I'm watching right now? I'll tell you right now. It's a comedy. I'm going to look that. It's a comedy. You guys should be on the Oh, I'm watching it for sure. Yeah. 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 100% watching it. So, what, what you guys should watch if you have like this weekend? Watch Succession. Anybody watching Succession? I'm sorry. It's a satire. Succession? Oh, God. Succession. It's stressful. I can't watch it. Why? Which one? Succession. Yo, you will fall in love. You're going to love that. Huh? No, no. This is about like a family business. It's super awesome. But I'll check that out. Look, don't look down. Don't look up. Don't look up. <laughs> All right. So, cancer. Um, there's no transition to it. <laughs> so, it is the second most, uh, gastric cancer is the second most common cause of uh, cancer-related death in the world. Uh, in the United States, it's the malignancy that's the 14th most common cancer. Uh, we smoke a lot more so that uh, tobacco and lung cancer is a little bit more common than this. Okay. So again, uh, this goes around a lot. And a lot of times, uh, you see here on the, on the bottom here, the highest rate is in Chile, Japan, uh, most of South America actually, uh, and the former Soviet Union as well. So it's very, very common uh, as far as death rates. The highest rates of getting it is in Asia, South America, and the lowest part of North America. So basically the whole world. 
right? That's really what set all this comes down to. Like the whole world has this, and we're not doing enough to uh, take care of it. Okay, ten thousand people uh, definitely died uh, from this, and so that's a lot. Okay. So um, again, most symptoms of gastric cancer are again you're going to get the symptoms after it's already advanced. So you know the feeling of the fullness, the nausea, weight loss, dysphagia, all those things tend to unfortunately come towards the end when we finally find out that you have uh, gastric cancer. Uh, so again, you could also hear the succussion splash in this as well. You can actually see see the peristalsis, not just hear it. You can see the peristalsis, so you see the stomach moving. But again, that's going to be a much more of an advanced disease. You can also have enlarged lymph nodes. This is when we start looking at the Virchow's nodes, which is a node in the supraclavicular lesion on the left side. There's also Irish nodes in the uh, anterior axillary. You could also have a sister Mary Joseph nodule as well uh, in the umbilical area. Uh, ascites, jaundice, especially if there's going to be liver mets there, and then transfer to neal spread. It starts to go all over the place here, especially when we talk about the Krukenberg tumors and things like that. Uh, lung metastasis as well. Okay, so here's your. Um, Here's a Virchow's node um, on the on the left uh, supraclavicular region. That uh, that looks like it's just about time to go. Uh, so that's specifically for uh, metastatic disease. So there's also a positive Trousseau sign. This is not to get confused by the Trousseau sign in hypocalcemia, which is basically when you pump up the blood pressure cuff and then you have a constant like random flexion of the wrist. And that's going to be in hypo hypocalcemia. Okay. So you guys doing brain bowl tomorrow? Yes. Yeah. Alright, am I right? Am I right? I might get in on that. I might get in on that. Who's coming tomorrow? It's a lot. Alright. Uh, who doesn't got a team member? Because I'm down to join a team. Actually, I'm going to bring my own team. I got it. <laughs> She's like, oh, my own team? Alright. <laughs> so, uh, just to see if I still got it. I probably don't, but just to see if I got it. Um, enlarged left anterior axillary lymph nodes or Irish nodes are very common. Anthocosis nigricans. This is something a very common thing you see in gastric cancer, but you could also see this in your patients that are obese and diabetic patients as well. Uh, I don't know if you guys have done derm yet. Yeah. Who taught you derm? Still going strong. Love it. I can never forget that. Irisipela. I can never forget. Tell you about the German. Huh? Tell you about the German. No. The German child is beautiful. This guy, by the way, is an absolute legend in this place. There's a reason he has a statue like after him. There. You know that's his, right? That little geometric shape in front of the garage, that's his thing. And only him would be like, yes, they might take it and get it. I'm like, why? You could have made a statue yourself, like anything, but you know with that. So transperitoneal uh, spread, again, this is going to be meds into the umbilicus, and that's where you get the Sister Mary Joseph nodule, and then Krukenberg tumor. So basically, this is going to be uh, ovarian cancer with meds from the stomach, okay? Uh, so you'll, you'll do a biopsy of that, and it'll tell you that there's obviously, it's coming, the cancer's coming from somewhere else. Uh, and how does it get there? How does a cancer of the stomach get to the ovaries? Through the lymphatic system, all right? So they say usually like through transperitoneal spread, but most of the beliefs is that it goes through the, the, uh, the lymphatic system and then lands in the ovaries, and the reason it does that is because the ovaries are highly vascular, so they'll, they'll probably attract it, and it's like the landing spot for unfortunately these, these cancers. So the lab tests that we can do for these patients, again, CBC, you'll see some anemia due to the living, uh, li uh, the, the, uh, the bleeding, and then you'll also see a liver dysfunction as well. Uh, electrolyte panels, you need to take a look at everything because, again, absorption is going to be uh, you know, you know, messed around with. 
liver function test. You do have to do the tumor markers, so you're gonna do a CEA. Uh, CA199 is very specific sometimes for uh, pancreatic cancer. Um, and then you could also do a CA125 to make sure that there's no you know, cervical or ovarian cancer uh, you know, spread. So you could do all these different types of tumor markers. But when they start doing these things, the CAs and the CEAs, keep in mind that this is probably somebody that uh, we're thinking about with, uh, with some sort of cancer process. Um, so again, you do an endoscopy for these patients. You could do a double contrast upper GI and barium swallows to see if there's any sort of obstruction. Uh, CT scan uh, or MRI of the chest, abdomen, and pelvis. So why all the way to the pelvis? Because we have to think about METs of the patient as well, right? So chest x-ray also. You could do an endoscopy, uh, endoscopic ultrasound as well. So look at the tumor, the size, or the location. The biopsy again, uh, 90 to 95% of these are going to be adenocarcinoma. The other is going to be lymphomas, um, myomyoma, myomyomas, carcinoids, adenocanthomas, and squamous cell carcinomas only make up about 1%, uh, so keep that in mind also. The, sur the surgery, uh, basically, which is going to be the only thing you can do for these patients, is going to be a total gastrectomy. Uh, so again, we have to find alternatives to maybe get a peg tube so that they can still absorb things as well. Uh, esophageal, uh, esophageal gastrectomy for tumors of the cardia and this gastroesophageal junction. So basically, uh, we're going to take off the lower part of the esophagus and then all of the stomach as well. Uh, lymph node dissection. They say should or shouldn't do this because only sometimes you need that to help you get through the cancer and things like that. But um, I'm, I'm big on when it does cut it out, just take it out. It's not doing its job anyway. So chemotherapy, I'm not going to get into you guys needing to know this. You went over this on hematology and oncology. The reason I don't go into this and the boards doesn't really go crazy on this either is because it's not something that is common. There's always a new cancer drug that comes out that we charge millions of dollars for anyway. So. Legal business, I told you it's an evil business. So long-term survival of gastric carcinoma, less than 15%. However, five-year survival rate who undergo successful curative resection do uh, go past that 45% on the five-year survival rate. So they do pretty well. So anybody that you're concerned about that could have gastric cancer is anybody that has weight loss, uh, protracted vomiting, iron deficiency anemia, melena, weight loss, dysphagia, uh, especially if they're more than 55 years old as well. Uh, then you can refer them to the oncologist, the surgeon, and the nutritionist for sure. I know it says if nutritional deficits, I'm going to tell you they're going to end up with nutritional deficit. They need a nutritionist for sure. All right, so Zollinger-Ellison syndrome, we talked about this. Remember when we're thinking about uh, somebody that's having refractory, um, you know, dyspepsia and, or GERD, and we're not able to take, it, take care of it with the PPIs or the H2 blockers. This is one of the, the, uh, the things that you have to keep in the back, uh, back pocket. And the way to really check for this is the, are the gastrin levels, okay? So basically what's happening is there's a hypersecretion of gastric acid, uh, the diarrhea is common, and usually it's going to be relieved by nasogastric suction, okay? Uh, most of these cases are sporadic, that they're just kind of there by themselves, but patients that have MENS, MENS type one, and you should know MENS uh, one, MENS two, and MENS three, this is something really common. Um, I used to remember this, but I'll, I'll see if I can break it down. You can Google it while I'm doing this, but I remember, so with men's three, it was three M's. It was a medullary, uh, medullary thyroid, medullary adrenal, and then I can't remember, medullary neuromas. That's the three M's, right? Somebody correct me on that. And men's three. So men's three is three M's, okay? But then I remember men two is the two M's plus one P, okay? So now you don't have the neuroma, but you have uh, something going on with the parathyroid, 
okay? So it'll be medullary uh, adenoma of the adrenals, and then, I can't remember the other one, but then the P was parathyroid. MENS1 is the one that you need to remember, uh, and that's the three Ps, okay? So no more M's, it's all three Ps. So pituitary, parathyroid, and pancreatic isolates, and most of the time, you will find Zollinger-Ellison syndrome in there as well, okay? So if you do have somebody that you find that has a high gastrin level, um, and they, you discover that they have a uh, Zollinger-Ellison syndrome, look for these other masses. So I would do a uh, MRI of the pituitary gland or an MRI of the cell of Tursica to look for any pituitary mass. Look for thyroid issues, right? Because remember, we said 25% of the time, these patients also deal with MENS1, so please keep that in mind. Um, and that's basically the breakdown of that slide. So basically, it's gonna be undistinguishable sometimes with PUD, other than that, nothing you do for them is getting them any better. Only one third of these patients will have diarrhea, recurrent ulcers, large ulcers, which is, are anything more than two centimeters. They'll also have fatty diarrhea as well. And then the fasting gastrin levels are elevated. We're looking for gastrin levels of more than 250 uh, when we're looking at what, or it says here 150, but it should be more than 250. Um, so you could also do a secretin test, which is needed to confirm. And then of course, we'll do an endoscopy, CT or MRI for those patients as well. For anybody that has metastatic disease from the Zollinger-Ellison syndrome, the gastroma, um, if it's isolated metastasis, uh, metastasis uh, surgical resection, uh, those tumors usually uh, grow pretty slow, so we can just go ahead and take them out. If it's localized disease, there is a 15-year survival rate, which is over 95% if there's no MENS, obviously. It's not spreading, so we have a better chance there. In MENS 1, there is no surgery. You have to do multifocal disease and long-term survival in these patients. So remember, there's multiple things happening, and that's what that means. MENS stands for multiple endocrine neoplasia, so keep that in mind. Pyloric stenosis. So this is something that I do go over uh, uh, later on when we are talking about uh, pediatrics um, because this is something that you're going to see probably in your um, two-month-old to like uh, four-month-old patient, okay? The big thing here to remember is that they're gonna have projectile vomiting, okay? Uh, it is the most common cause of an intestinal obstruction in your infants. Uh, this whole, you know, back in the day where we used to say, oh, there's an olive-shaped mass in the stomach, that's old school. People already know that that's happening. So a lot of times they'll just tell you that, hey, there's a uh, firm, elongated area on the right upper quadrant. They'll skip the whole statement of palpable uh, olive-shaped mass, okay? Uh, but basically, it's gonna be gastroesophageal reflux. They may have intestinal uh, webs. That's something that you need to look at as far as the differentials. Uh, could also have Hirschsprung's disease, which is something that can happen in infants as well. Um, and then, again, them vomiting like that is something you need to look at also. So the typical presentation is going to be uh, non-bilious projectile vomiting, non-bilious projectile vomiting, just constantly coming out, and you can feel the you can feel the mass there, and the patient's going to be uh, hypochloremic uh, metabolic alkalosis. I think if that's on the bottom, it should be there on the bottom. Oh no, it's here. Okay, so when you see this, this is what they're going to show you. So they may not show you that they're hypochloremic alkalosis. They'll tell you that we did a venous blood gas and basically it's 7.47, um, the chloride is low, the potassium is low, so obviously it's gonna be low because you're vomiting all of that stuff out, right? So the ultrasound is going to show you a hypertrophy of the sphincter, and basically what we need to do for these patients, obviously fluid resuscitate them from everything that they're losing, and then we're gonna to need to do a surgical procedure, which is known as a pylomyotomy, 
so, um, and again, this is a medical emergency and needs to be evaluated as soon as possible. And this is exactly what's happening in the lower end. So in the pylorus of the stomach, there's the nosis, which is narrowing, we already talked about, right? Um, remember the medication that can cause this is clarithromycin. So mm -hmm. you know, be on top of that as well. It's just literally narrowing. That muscle starts to swell, and yeah, I guess inflammation, um, and it closes up the ending of the stomach. So it pops out, and nothing can get in. So everything you see, like the stomach is open from the esophagus, everything goes down, it'll come right back up because there's no place for it to go into the duodenum. Okay? Yeah, don't ever give kids clarithromycin, for sure. Okay. What was that? They do have a higher incidence in premature babies, but uh, it can happen in babies. There we go. All right, let's break it down real quick. So, with uh, with the stomach, so the first thing we talked about were um, the gastric ulcers, right? And you have to determine the difference between PUD and um, duodenal ulcers. Remember, with peptic ulcer disease, the most common cause is going to be H. pylori, NSAIDs, and alcohol. So we have to get to the bottom of what that is. A lot of times, if you just eliminate that, you can take care of that as well. Stress can also cause peptic ulcer disease. Uh, remember that elderly patients, specifically more than 60 years old, if we're going to give them an NSAID, we have to give them uh, a PPI to protect their stomach as well. Okay? Um, if the pain gets worse when you eat, like 30 minutes after, that's a peptic ulcer disease. If the pain gets better, it's gonna be probably duodenal ulcer, which we're gonna talk about a little bit later as well, okay? In your patients, uh, the next thing we started talking about were patients that have gastroparesis, where now I can't move. So think about uh, paralysis of the stomach. So people that are commonly able to get that are going to be your diabetics, diabetic uh, one and two. Um, patients that just came back from surgery, so remember we were talking about the, um, the uh, the patients that end up having, uh, God, what, I forgot the name of it now. What is it? What's the name for that? What? When things freeze, hang on. Gastroparesis. Gastroparesis, but I'm, it's going to come to me. So, patients that. Um, ileus. Okay, so like patients with ileus. So, patients that have paranoid ileus, they're going to. Uh, is that what you said? You got it? Bro, I might join your team tomorrow. Like, that. that's not good. <laughs> so, uh, so paranoid ileus. So, remember. Have those patients walk, drink water, chew gum, so that we can introduce more gas in there so they can eventually pass it, and then they can go home. So other than that, gastroparesis, remember that the, the, the test choice is gonna be a scintography, but before we do the scintographies, they have to be off of the opioids, they have to be off of uh, metroclopramide or erythromycin, because again, that can slow down the digestion as well. So then, after that is all done, then you can put them back on those medications that eventually does help them with their symptoms. You could do a CT scan with IV contrast. I told you don't do a CT scan with PO contrast because it's gonna, if there's obstruction, it's gonna come right back up and you're gonna make them pop, okay? Uh, make sure to also know that if you look at the CBC because the CBC is gonna help us determine if it's phlegmonous, if it's, there's some sort of anemia, uh, whether it's microcytic or macrocytic is something that we need to take a look at. Most of these patients you do need to do an endoscopy on because we do wanna make sure that H. pylori is not there. And we saw that H. pylori is one of those uh, precancerous conditions as well. Look into the triple and quadruple therapy of uh, H. pylori as well. So remember um, that we do cap, clarithromycin, uh, amoxicillin and um, PPIs, okay? And if they're allergic to amoxicillin, which in your, or penicillin in general, 
which in your case is probably going to happen because that's only the next step that we can take. We're going to give those patients some metronidazole. You do have to do a H. pylori test again in four weeks after the treatment to see if it's eradicated. If it's not eradicated, then we can do the quadruple therapy. And from there, you can see if it's going to be bismuth or no bismuth from there. Okay. On top of that, you're going to um, then look into people that may have gastric cancer. It's going to be pretty like vague symptoms, nausea, weight loss. They may or may not have hematemesis. They may or may not have melanoma or hematochesia. And we're going to check for that when we do the stool glyac test on those patients as well. Uh, remember that you don't have to remember the chemotherapy on those uh, patients, but most of the times you do need to do some sort of surgery on those patients. You do need to get them involved with the nutritionist uh, as well, because sometimes they're going to be dealing with a PEG tube also. And it's a very common cancer. It is the second most common cause of death in the world. So again, it's very, very common to deal with this. Uh, multiple uh, things that can cause this as well. Remember, H. pylori is one of those things that can cause it as well. We started talking about uh, Zollinger-Ellison syndrome as well, where remember if there's refractory uh, GERD or refractory dyspepsia, it's not getting any better. We ruled out eosinophilic esophagitis and look, looked at infectious esophagitis. We can do a gastrin level that's gonna be elevated more than 250, and that's gonna help us determine that this patient does have Zollinger-Ellison syndrome. Remember that Zollinger-Ellison syndrome is also involved with MENS1, uh, so they, they may also have some sort of uh, issue going on with the parathyroid, something going on with the pituitary gland as well, or even the pancreatic eyelid cells as well. So if you find the Zollinger-Ellison syndrome, remember 25% of those patients will also be involved with uh, MENS1 as well. And in those patients, we have to treat each thing one by one, uh, so take care of that as well. Um, talked about pyloric stenosis, which I think was the last thing, and then Caesar, you'll, you'll tell me if I'm missing anything. Uh, pyloric stenosis, so remember this could be common. Uh, the way I break down kid disorders, um, basically, and the stomach, is when they're born, the first two days is probably gonna be atresia, duodenal atresia. So that's like the first few days that they're born. And then the next thing that can happen is pyloric stenosis. That's usually like in week eight to 12 that they usually get this little two months to three month old patient. And this patient, you're gonna have non-bilious uh, non projectile vomiting that leads the patient to become hypocholeremic, hypokalemic, and it's gonna be having metabolic alkalosis. Those patients, you need IV fluids and send them to the surgeon so they can correct that as well. Remember, clarithromycin is a medication you want to avoid in the patients that have pyloric stenosis. And I think that was it. Okay, right. Enjoy your weekend, man. I might see you guys tomorrow morning. I ain't got else to do this so. time. <laughs> Anything else? All right. That's good, right? I finished right on time, right? Awesome. Is he going to go? All right.